This podcast is presented by State Farm, a proud supporter of women's soccer and all women's sports. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In my 20s, when I went to West Ham to interview him for the first time, I may or may not have said to him, Alan, before I start my interview, I just have to tell you that I wrote you when I was... <laughs> 11 and I absolutely loved you. So yeah, Alan Pardew. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. How did Alan respond? Well, Alan was, um, how do I put this? Alan's a confident guy. I think Alan was just like, <laughs> I mean, join the queue, Rebecca. Join the bloody queue. From Apple News, I'm Rebecca Lowe. And I'm Brendan Hunt, and this is After the Whistle. Today, there is no whistle. There is merely your questions, which we are here to answer. And we're going to preview the World Cup final between the cheeky lionesses and the formidable, a little bit scary Spain. Reminder, there will be adult language. Especially if he doesn't like your questions. Well, first of all, we've had a great turnout from our listeners, our wonderful listeners. Thank you all for your contributions here. It was a tremendous task to whittle down to just a show's worth of them. Our apologies to the worthy ones that didn't quite make it in. But, you know, not everyone has all the time in the world. we got to respect people and their day. So we will get to some particular uh, favorites here. And the first one is perhaps the biggest doozy of them all. And it's from our man, Brad Milkey. And uh, it's about how America's National Women's Soccer League will compare to the European leagues after this World Cup going forward. Take it away, Brad. Hey, guys. Absolutely love the podcast. Think this has been so great. You guys should make a million more of them. I had a question about sort of the legacy potentially of this Women's World Cup, particularly when it comes to clubs. Like for the last several years, one of the questions has been, is the center of the women's game in the US, you know, this traditional power, or is it in Europe? Because we've seen all these incredible, you know, European leagues with their European games and they're drawing massive fan bases and they've got great players. And I feel like if the US had won this tournament, there would be no question that the NWSL is an elite destination. That's where most of the US women play, but that didn't happen. US women lost. And one of our best players, by the way, plays in France, Lindsay Horan. Does that mean that Europe is going to be cemented over the next couple of years as a place where all of our women are told they have to go if they want to get better, which will be ugh, so familiar <laughs> to the men's game? I mean, could this be a real turning point for where the global center of power is in women's club football? Um, thank you so much. Love the show. Go Riveters. This is a fantastic question. And thank you, Brad, because it gets to something I, th- I thought was very interesting before the World Cup. And then it gets to the possible secret damage that could be done by the U.S. women having such a horrible tournament. The men's game has, you know, decades of history here, uh, over a century of, of history in some cases. And where MLS will not really be able to compete with that, the NWSL is, is at a totally new moment in a history that is still being built. The NWSL does have the ability to find a way to be the dominant league in the world in a way that MLS will never catch up to the Champions League. But you have to have attention to this moment and find a way to do that. And I thought, yes, oh my gosh, great. But now, Rebecca, with the U.S. losing and we're having a final between Spain and England who represent the traditional biggest clubs in Europe, is this more of a watershed moment in terms of where club power will be in the women's game than we had given it credit for. I think it's a danger. 
to women's football in America. I do. I think in a way it slightly reflects the situation with the national team. You know, I think that we talked about a number of weeks ago now when the USA fell out of the World Cup that maybe this could be in the long run a good thing for women's football at the national level because they will kind of get a proverbial kick up the backside by all of these nations that are chasing them and have now equaled them, if not jumped over them. Perhaps it'll be the same thing on the domestic front in terms of at the club level. Perhaps there has been an element possibly of complacency within the US soccer landscape in terms of the women's game. The NWSL is very, very big. And United States are generally always thinking that their league in terms of women's football is the best because it has been on the whole historically. The women in the UK are still very much treated in sort of second-class citizens in terms of a lot of their training facilities and even stadiums. So, for example, Chelsea are the best team in England and they don't even play every game at Stamford Bridge. In fact, they only play about four or five games a season at Stamford Bridge. No, no, they're not allowed at Stamford Bridge. Not good enough yet. Not big enough yet. They have to play at King's Meadow. Whereas, for example, San Diego Wave, who I've seen play have an amazing stadium and a really good training facility and everything is catered towards them. Brandy Chastain, of course, alongside a number of the other ladies coming into the Bay FC next year to a brand new NWSL franchise next summer. Everything is going to be built around the women. So I don't think we have to be too concerned, but I think it just might be the, the kind of the kick up the backside that women's soccer in America needs. We shouldn't see it as a negative. I think we should just see it as a challenge. I hope it is taken that way. I just want to have one follow-up for you. Like, watching the Women's Champions League semifinal last year between Arsenal and Wolfsburg, which I think was a sellout at the Emirates, those kinds of gigantic showcase events that will sell out a 65,000-seat stadium from time to time, they are massive money events and massive cultural events that I don't think anything in the NWSL can match. Are those events alone for their financial impact and cultural impact also a bit of a siren's call, if you'll pardon the metaphor, for the greatest players in the world, particularly the greatest players in Europe? Yeah. Again, I don't see it as a negative thing. I think if we look at women's football as a global thing, we have to be inspired by those events. We have to be inspired by what's happening in other countries, just like Europe has been inspired by America for so long in the women's game. Look what that's done. Well, it's just caused Europe to get better. So I'm not so worried about it. And actually, Brendan, it kind of links us on to the next question because we've had a question from Abby in Washington, D.C. Let's have a listen. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Brendan. I was so inspired last season when I believe in your mailbag episode, someone asked a question about who to follow in the Premier League. And that question inspired me to choose a team to follow. Um, This is my first season as a Brentford supporter, so very exciting. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the women's side of these premier clubs? As an ignorant American, I don't think I realized that there are women's sides of these clubs and would love to hear about maybe the history in the Premier League um, or in other leagues and how it's changed and evolved. Well, they've evolved massively because it has gone from being a cluster of clubs like Arsenal, like Doncaster Bells, like Charlton Athletic, who were the kind of original 20 years ago, we're going to start women's football and take it quite seriously, not massively, quite. Arsenal have been the best. They have trained at the men's training ground the whole way along. So they have been brilliant. 
But it took Manchester United, for example, not until a few years ago. They are recent entries into women's football. Manchester United, holding firm, they weren't interested for a long, long time. It has been a journey. It feels like it's happened quickly in the Premier League in terms of the women's teams. But I think that it's happened gradually until the last five years when, as has happened a lot in the world, women have been able to take a stand a bit more. Women have been able to be a bit stronger, had more of a say, had more of a voice. And then, lo and behold, important men in suits have thought, gosh, you know what? We can make a bit of money out of those women. And that's why we now have more women's WSL, Women's Super League teams. All right, Rebecca, we have two questions here that we're going to combine into one. Katie from SoCal asks, if we could go back in time to any World Cup game, which game would we choose? Well, Tony from NorCal asks, if we could go to any match of any category, which one would we choose? For the World Cup one, I'm going to split that into Women's World Cup and Men's World Cup, and I'm going to show you what a homer I am. For the Women's World Cup, oh, I wish I could have been at that 99 World Cup final mm-hmm. at the Rose Bowl, an absolute, pardon me for using this term twice in one pod, watershed mm-hmm. moment, not just in the game, but in uh, American cultural history. And for the men, I would want to be at the 2002 World Cup opening match for the U.S. as they shocked Portugal 3-2 to two behind goals from uh, John O'Brien, Brian McBride, and I believe an own goal from Jorge Costa. Oh, it was magic. <laughs> okay, for the men's, there's only one place I'm going, and it's basically because I don't actually want to go and relive any other World Cup games because they've all ended in heartache. The only one that didn't was in 1966 at Wembley Stadium when England beat Germany 4-2 after extra time to lift the World Cup at home in front of our own fans. On the women's side, not going to go back, going to go forward. Three days time. That's where I'm going. I'm going to Australia in three days time. And in terms of non-World Cup, I'll pop in first on that. For me, if I could go back in time to the FA Cup semi-final of 1990 at Villa Park when Crystal Palace met Liverpool. And earlier that season, Liverpool had beaten Crystal Palace 9-0. Bloody nil earlier that season. And so going into this FA Cup semi-final, I was like, oh, Palace are never going to win this ever. And I remember watching it on my sofa and I was just only getting into football then, but that was the game that changed everything for me. And super Alan Pardew in extra time to head home the winner against the mighty Liverpool, it will forever be uneclipsed for me, the 1990 FA Cup semi-final. And then, of course, we go into the final to play Manchester United and they won, so we'll just stop there. I've actually seen that goal because I was watching <sighs> a, like, a History of English Football highlights package on some random-ass flight, and I only knew Ellen Pardew as the coach of, I think, Charlton at that point. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, yep. Alan Pardew was a player and he scored a huge goal! Oh, my God! <laughs> I love learning that shit. And Brendan, I will not lie to you. I developed a very serious crush on AL, Super Al, Super Alan Pardew. I may or may not have had him across my pencil case on my wall. I may or may not have written him a letter. And then in my 20s, when I went to West Ham to interview him for the first time, I saw him for the first time, I may or may not have said to him, Alan, before I start my interview, I just have to tell you that I wrote you when I was <laughs> 11 and I absolutely loved you. So yeah, Alan Pardew. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. How did Alan respond? Well, Alan was, um, how do I put this? Alan's a confident guy. I think Alan was just like, I mean, join the queue, Rebecca. Join the bloody queue. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't quite match the story of my crush a few years later. Simon Roger, mid-90s, 
absolutely in love with him, the Crystal Palace midfielder. And it was the FA Cup semi-final also at Villa Park against Manchester United, and I think it was 95. And he was injured, but I saw him across the car park. And I said, Dad, there's Simon Roger. And he was on crutches. And I was like, I need to get signature. We had no paper. We had a pen and a wine bottle. And I ran across the car park to hobbling Simon Roger. And I got him to sign my wine bottle, which he did. And I kept it in my wardrobe for 10 years. And one day I came home and it wasn't there. Mum, where's the, where's the wine bottle? Oh, did you need that? Oh, the cleaner threw that out. Stop it right now. <laughs> yeah, so enter the men in blazers 10 years after that, a few years ago, who I told that story to and Roger Blumen Bennett found Simon Roger and I've now got another bottle of wine signed by my 1995 crush. Uh-huh. I mean, story. <laughs> that is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I know. Sorry, we've got about 25 questions to get through. Let's carry on. Are you going to just give us your one that you're going to go back to in terms of club football? 1972 European Cup final, Ajax, second of their three oh. wins in a row over mighty Inter Milan. Two goals, both by Johan Krauf at the Feyenoord Stadium, the Kaup in Rotterdam, which is Holland's finest stadium. That would have been a magical thing to see. Next question. Okay, this one comes from Aaron in Chesapeake. Did I say that right? Virginia. You did. You crushed it. Howdy. My name is Aaron Westcote. My question to you all is what has been your most favorite goal of this tournament so far? Okay. Best goal of the tournament. You go. Um, there's a lot of great ones. There's a lot of great ones, but I think really any anyone who says it's not Sam Kerr is thinking too hard. The Sam Kerr goal, I've looked at it over and over again. I know there was a, a wee deflection, but I think that was the most glancing of all deflections, merely a flesh wound, not even a flesh wound, in fact. So uh, <laughs> there's some great nominees. I won't list them down because I don't want to take one away if you're going to name one of these. But Sam Kerr will live forever in that. Oh, mate, mate, we're not reading out a list. We're giving it to Sam Kerr. I didn't even have to think about anyone else. It's for the moment. It's for the history. It's for the iconic situation. It's for who she is. It's for everything. I'm so glad she had her moment. And it's the easiest goal of the tournament decision any of us have ever made. Next. We got a Nicole from St. Louis. We do, because this is an interesting one. This is for you, Nicole from St. Louis, which I once said St. Louis on air on NBC, nearly got fired. Uh, And her question is, I've noticed in quite a few games, there are times when the crowd in the stadium starts counting down. What is going on? Well, you've been to a number of games. What are they counting down to? Please tell me it's not to starting a Mexican. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, Oh, no! People trying to force a wave by getting their whole section to count down. That is why the television cameras are not taking you to it. It's a monstrosity that must never be repeated, and it is Australia's greatest shame. Next. (laughs) All right. So just before we take a quick break, we've got to talk about coaching because we've got some questions about that. And also, I think we maybe need to have a little minute to talk about Vlad Gawandanovsky, who has either resigned or stepped down or mutually parted ways. Who knows? No matter the case, correct decision. And now the merry-go-round that is the managerial roller coaster international edition is up and running. And the head of the English FA has already said that if the US dares to go anywhere near Serena Vigman, I mean, he didn't quite say that. He just said if, if they get approached by US soccer for Vigman, they will say no, because she's contracted with England until 2025. We've uh, We've got some questions from listeners here about who the next coach should be. And there's some great suggestions. Randy Waldron, who was the Nigeria coach, who's actually from Texas. Jonas Einval, uh, who was the Arsenal coach. But I just don't think it should be 
a man again. Of course, it should just come down to who's the best coach, but there are so few opportunities for women's coaches, excellent women's coaches in the men's game. Let's make sure those opportunities are happening in the women's game. So two men's coaches in a row for the national team. Uh, not into it. Well, it's interesting because Jamel Jones from Richmond, Virginia had this question. After the Whistle Podcast, this is Jamel Jones from Richmond, Virginia in the good old U.S. of A. And here's my question. Is it strange that there are so many male coaches in the female game? I understand why they are there in the first place, of course, because of the patriarchy. Yet, I'm slightly curious if it's strange that they still persist. Let a brother know. Thank you for your graciousness in answering. I think in answer to Jamel's question, obviously there's just been more men involved in the game than women. It doesn't, funnily enough, Brendan, bother me as much as it bothers you. I actually quite like it. And I wonder if that's just because I'm coming at it from an angle that I have spent 25 years trying to get men to be interested in the women's game. So when Phil Neville took the England job, I was blooming delighted. I actually kind of love seeing men coaching women in the women's game. Not because it, it denies women an opportunity, but because it's kind of, for me, actually a step forward. What I find really interesting is that today there were already newspaper reports linking Serena Wiegmann with Gareth Southgate's job. Now that's when we get into an interesting sphere because a woman in the men's game, of course, much more unusual. We had one recently in the Football League for about three weeks and then as a caretaker manager down at Forest Green Rovers and then she was moved on. So we are still waiting for that first situation to happen and we're better than at the national level. I think it might be a stretch in this particular situation. I don't think England's ready for that. But that's interesting, isn't it? Terribly. And if there was ever going to be a female coach who would take over England, of all things, someone who would have the mentality to do it, of course it would be a Dutch woman. Hmm. Of course it would be a Dutch woman. Get in there, Serena Wiegman. (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's going to (laughs) happen, but she's the one for whom it doesn't seem impossible. Right, we've got to take a short break. More questions from you, our lovely listeners, are right after this. This podcast is presented by State Farm, which believes in amplifying the voices and profiles of women athletes. By ensuring coverage for female athletes today, State Farm helps set the stage for women's sports tomorrow. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. All right, Rebecca, we are back. And this question is for you. And uh, it, it might be the most important question that we've ever had on the show. We go to Kathy from Pennsylvania. My question is for Rebecca, who says that she has the secret to Lindsay Horan's ponytail. You've got to spill it. Come on, girlfriend. We need to know. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. Excellent question. Brendan's fiance, Shannon, and I have discussed this at length. I feel bad, actually. Can I just, first of all, say sorry to all of my female slash male man bun listeners out there because I feel like I've teased this all the way through the podcast that there's this ponytail situation and I haven't actually given detail. By the way, we don't know Lindsay Horan uses this trick, but just seeing the immense 
status of her ponytail led me down quite the rabbit hole. Ponies, rabbits, the whole thing. And I found a trick which I'm convinced, and I may or may not have spent a lot of time watching the England team the other day in the semi-final, staring at their ponytails just to see and ascertain whether or not they also were using this trick. <laughs> so you're watching that as, as, and the kind of like, now, is England truly caught up in the game? <laughs> <laughs> but for those listening, here goes. Anyone who's ever done a ponytail will know what I mean. On the final twist... Right, you got your hairband, you're doing the pony. On the final twist, all I want you to take through is the top half of the ponytail. And I'm even going to do it for you, Brendan, here. So you take this top half and you put it through. So when it, and you leave the bottom half. So then, oh, wh- sure. and then you kind of smush it all together to make a nice perky pony. I mean, it is a game changer. It's the smush. Right? A smush. Let's smush. Gotta get that late smush. So there you go. Smush yourselves to a better ponytail. Continuing the part of the podcast that is just about Rebecca and her curious culture, uh, Liz Whitehead (laughs) from Long Beach noticed something that I noticed, which was in the New York Times crossword puzzle the other day. I couldn't believe it. There was a question about how many players are on a fucking netball team. No. I cannot get away from netball this summer. The New York Times crossword, my safe haven from all things soccer sadness. Please, Rebecca, enlighten us. How many players are on a netball team? Seven on each team, Great. 14 in total. There you go. It's a small-sided game only for very talented athletes. <laughs> like myself, <laughs> through the 90s. Each of them with uh, high, flouncy, elastic <laughs> Flouncy. Oh, God, I love a bit of flounce. Next question comes from Anna. Hi, Rebecca and Brendan. My name's Anna. I'm from Iowa City, Iowa. What are some ways that we as fans of the sport can continue to encourage the progression in women's soccer that we've seen so much of during this World Cup going forward? Well, for me, Brendan, I don't know about what you think, and this is an age-old conversation. The big way that we can continue to support women's football is to go to club games. And it's getting a bit better, but the gulf, certainly in England, between going to watch England at Wembley when it's 90,000 full and then going down to watch Chelsea against Arsenal in the WSL, two of the best teams, when it's not anywhere near Wembley Stadium, and it's not anywhere near 9,000, let alone 90,000, is the problem. So for me, please, if you've enjoyed the Women's World Cup, find your closest women's team. It doesn't have to be NWSL. It doesn't have to be WSL if you're listening to us in England. It can be lower down the pyramid, lower down. There's a new USL Women's League starting up. There are so many women's teams, and even lower down than that. What about your local college soccer team, women's soccer? So I just urge you to try and go to those local teams, and then we can build from there. We need to get the national game and the club game much closer together, Brendan. I'd also say that, especially for people who don't live in big cities, you know, whatever is your nearest school that has a girls' soccer team, I bet they don't have all the support they could. And I bet they're taking donations to get, you know, better boots, you know, uh, goals where the twine doesn't snap, et cetera, et cetera. So there is very small grassroots things you can do like that. And then you know, back to the macro, every ticket bought, every pair of eyes for the women's game helps. So, you know, if you should see that there's a, a Champions League game on television, like turn it on, stream it. It helps the numbers and it helps the momentum going forward. And there are loads as well. There are loads of really good podcasts on women's football out there. And CBS and Paramount Plus have the rights to the NWSL. They do a really good job wrapping around those games. So just search it out. If you can't get to a game, search it out online or on TV. Our final question from Netta brings it all together. Uh, Netta, please take it away. 
Hey guys, huge fans of all that you do covering this tournament and football in general. So thanks for that. My question is for each of you, what is going to be your number one or like top two big takeaways from this tournament? What are going to be the main things that you're taking going forward for the next four or five years of women's football coming off of this World Cup? Thanks. I have a sideways answer to this. And, um, (laughs) I'm not being funny. My takeaway from this World Cup is more of a life lesson and less of a football lesson. Um, But of course, what is life but football, I'm told. And that is, uh, (laughs) don't take anything for granted. Yeah. Like, I came all the way to fucking Australia and New Zealand, skipping the group stage completely because, you know, the U.S. has never, ever failed to make the last four of the Women's World Cup. The group stage was going to be a cakewalk. And then it was just a matter of like, how far would they go after that? And how far did they go? Not far at all. (laughs) And are they guilty of taking things for granted? Well, you know, according to uh, Bierenstein, yes. According to some real cocky commercials that uh, seem pretty regrettable now, yes. Never take anything for granted in your life or especially the lives of others. (laughs) Bless your little heart. Bless your little heart with your massive vacation that turned out to be a damp squib, but you've made the best of it. We're trying. Lugging the whole family across 75 oceans. I got a Luke Longley shirt. I'm walking to the streets of Sydney. There's an NBA store. I bought a Luke Longley shirt in Australia. Mate, silver linings at every turn, quite literally. Thank you. For me, it's a, it's a similar thing. It's just that I feel like this tournament will be looked back on in years to come as the tournament, the line in the sand of the women's game where it shifted on its axis and turned into a direction where it's anyone's game. And so in 2027, I don't think what happened to you, well, you ain't missing the group stage in 2027, I'll tell you that for nothing. I don't think anyone will. I think that now has been left behind and there will be in four more years time with more funding and hopefully fewer contentious situations between federations and teams, there will be less complacency from those bigger countries. And altogether, it will be an even better World Cup in four years time, a bigger and better one. That's my biggest takeaway, that this has been such a massive change of direction and step forward. And and again, we've said this before, but I'll say it again. For it to have been, because I agree completely, this is a new dawn for the Women's World Cup, but for it to have come when they expanded to 32 teams and for that expansion to have gone so well with so much so much competitive balance and and so many surprises. It is, I mean, a huge downer for uh, the likes of us and, you know, Brazil and Germany and Canada, but just a massive, massive step forward for this tournament and the game in general. Brendan, should we take a quick break here? Okay, let's. On or off the pitch, women athletes deserve to be recognised for being awesome competitors and for being inspiring role models for generations to come. That's why State Farm is proud to present this podcast. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. All right, Rebecca, there's just one last thing to do. Let's take at least a wee gander into the future for the World Cup final. Spain versus jolly old with an E, Ingerland. 
I just want to say one little thing and one larger thing. First of all, for me, it's about that England defense is staying as strong in terms they have all tournament. I think they will. I think they are essentially unbreakable at this point, and Spain will find many, many salvos crashing at the rocks of the boots and knees and elbows of Millie Bright and company. But the danger woman at this point for Spain is uh, Salma Paruelo, who was not heralded before the tournament. We were thinking more about Puteas and Bonmati, mm-hmm. but you know she has scored two of the last three goals, each one late daggers. And it turns out she's kind of a fascinating story. She uh, was on course to become a 400-meter hurdler at the Olympics. This was up until two years ago, when finally being at Barcelona and having a heck of a youth track career, Barcelona was like, all right, you're playing soccer from now on because you're a Barcelona <laughs> player. And at that point, you got to go, all right, well, 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 fine. Youth champion in relay and hurdles. Like, is she the fastest woman at this tournament? I would assume so, given all this. She at least can jump the highest. We're giving that to her for the hurdles. And hopefully she gets the start this time. And if she does... That's tricky for England to deal with. I mean, hopefully she doesn't get the start. But like I said in the last episode, I think she should. You know, if you're the Spain manager, if you're Vilda, you have to start with her. But this leads me on to just the one thing I want to say about the game. I've changed my mind about Lauren James. She's available again after the um, little, I don't know, stamp as we called it. Not a step, not a stamp, the stamp. She's available again after that red card. And oh, and you were thinking in the last step that you wanted a tunage to keep Mm. her start ahead Mm. of Lauren James. And this is what you are reversing on. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the problem between semi-final and final with the emotional roller coaster that one goes on when one's team does reach the final. And you're very much all over the place with emotions. I thought about both sides. Ella Toon, it would be so harsh to pull her out, not just because she scored a goal, but because she played well. But you very rarely, and you might never again, be in a World Cup final. Might never again. I think in 1966, I'm sure England thought we'd be in loads. Oh, guess what? Ain't been another one since. These women may not. We don't know. Wiegmann might leave and we might tank, right? We might nosedive in terms of form and talent. Probably won't, but we might. There ain't no guarantee of a World Cup final coming along anytime soon again. She is arguably our best player. This is a World Cup final. I think she should start her. I don't think she will. But I think she should. Because here's why. If we're 2-0 down on 65 and you bring her off the bench, things get desperate. You've got to start then hoping Lauren James does a half an hour from another planet to get us back into the game. I would prefer she started and tries to get us into a 2-0 lead rather than help us get back from a 2-0 deficit. So, Serena, you can do what you want, love, because you're the greatest thing to ever happen to arguably English football. But if it were me, I think I would go with Lauren James. What do you make of that, Brendan? I love that you bring up the 66 World Cup because England coach Alf Ramsey was also faced with a question of who to start in attack. The legendary, uh, then legendary Jimmy Greaves or uh, West Ham's workmanlike Jeff Hurst. That's a great shout. That's a great shout. Now, this choice that Alf Ramsey made was not red card driven, but it was a shock. Jimmy Greaves was the clear front runner, I guess, in, in that positional race. But Alf Ramsey looked at what Germany was doing, said today to win this World Cup. Mm-hmm. We got to go with Jeff Hurst. And Jeff Hurst only went and scored a fucking hat trick in a fucking <laughs> World Cup final. Fun trivia fact. Who was the fourth goal by England scored by? Oh, God. Um, Ma- Ma- Martin Peters. Hey, you got there. Got you got it. there. Good job. <laughs> ah, I love the turnabout. Um, so, yeah. No, good shout you. Like, 
There is no, oh, we'll just do it this way next time. There is only today. We can take nothing for granted, as we have learned from this tournament. <laughs> and if Lauren James is the best for the job, and I think it's a pretty hard sell to say she isn't, then you got to get her in there. Apologies to the tunage. Absolutely. Mate, I will speak to you when we're either runners-up or world champions. Not World Cup champions. Don't like that phrase. Weird. World champions. Okay? We'll chat on Sunday. Can't wait. Rooting for you. Be well. (sighs) Be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate and review us. It really helps people find the show. And for all the latest tournament news and a preview of the final, check out my sports on the Apple News app where available. Did you ever try Vegemite or no? No. Wow. Here's the thing. I'm a picky eater, you know, child of divorce. (laughs) We're getting into like, you know, delicate mental balance here. Like I just got started on apples. Like, Stop it right now. Are you telling me yes or no that... Five years ago, you had never eaten an apple? Five years ago, I would never have elected by choice to eat an apple. I would eat applesauce. Ooh, pour that sugary concoction straight down <laughs> me. But, but an apple? Whoa. This is amazing. Whoa. Oh my God, this is amazing.